Matthew chapter 23 this morning for our time in God's Word. And uh, let's read this entire chapter, verses 1 through 39, and then we'll pray and ask God to help us, and then we'll, we'll study His Word together. Matthew chapter 23 and verse number 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so practice and observe whatever they tell you to, or whatever they tell you, rather, but not what they do, for they preach but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do, not all, they do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven, Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup And the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous. Saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken apart with we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. 
Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some who will, you will flog in, the, in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barakiah, Barakiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who, sent, who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Father, thank you for this portion of your word, which will speak directly to us this morning. We are in need of hearing your voice. We need your wisdom. We need to think your thoughts after you. We praise you for the preservation of Matthew's record of these words from Jesus. And we humbly bow ourselves in submission to your word. We do not want to stand over your word this morning, but rather we want to sit under your authoritative words to us. We need help from you for this time, both in the proclamation and the reception of your word. I need grace and strength for clarity and conviction for simplicity where it is necessary. We all need reception and grace for humility in response to your word. So that we might not just be merely hearers or accumulators of information this morning. But rather that we would be doers, those affected and changed from the inside out because we have encountered your word. Shape and mold us, we ask, according to your sovereign plan. In the name of our Christ, amen. If the glove does not fit, you must acquit. These are famous words from my high school days. I remember coming home every day after school, and we would have the television on in our house, and we would watch Johnny Cochran, the master of, well, it depends on your perspective, a master of something in communication, deliver his, his speeches. And in his closing statement, you remember that he put the glove on the hand of O.J. Simpson, who was standing trial for double murder. And the glove, disfigured and shrunken by blood and wetness, did not fit. And he pounded home to the jury and to the courtroom and to the television audience, which was unprecedented in its viewing. If the glove doesn't fit, you must acquit. Maybe that's unique to me as being memorable in my, I, I, I strongly and clearly remember that statement. Perhaps you're not in the same clarity, but you have some Perry Mason episode or, or I don't know, Matlock or somebody who made a closing statement in front of the jury. Maybe you're a, a law and order fan and you have watched television show after television show of someone standing before a jury and making a closing argument that with all of the evidence in 
is to seal up this decision that they must make. If it is the prosecuting attorney, it is to declare the defendant guilty. If it is the defending attorney, it is to acquit the party that is being accused of the crime. With all of the evidence collected, the closing statement is that moment where the attorney must now shape all of that and bring it to bear upon the jury so that they make the decision that he desires for them to make. Matthew chapter 23 represents the closing statement of Jesus with his enemies. Um, We have been studying this section for weeks and probably even close to months now of Jesus interacting with a unified group of enemies of his kingdom purposes. In Matthew chapter 23, he gets the last word. All the evidence is in. All of it has been compiled. He has interacted with his enemies. He's even now challenged his enemies. And now chapter 23 does not represent some kind of interaction. There's not some give and take here. This is simply the closing statement of the Messiah himself. He is judge and jury. And he presents his statement to all who were near him. And even it's preserved for us by the providence of God through Matthew's record for our consideration this morning. Now, to put this in its context, this closing statement, I want to remind you about the whole of the, the, the book of Matthew, the gospel record of Matthew. And perhaps we haven't done this enough or haven't done this recently enough to make this memorable. There are five discourses that basically make the outline of Matthew. If you, if you read through Matthew, there are five major sermons, if you will, teaching moments, they're called discourses, from Jesus. So we have an introduction that takes us from chapter 1 to chapter 4, introducing the king to us. You remember this, starts with genealogies, goes through temptation in the wilderness and the baptism of Jesus where the father speaks to the credentials and to the validity of the son. And so we have an introduction of the king. Then in chapter 5, we have discourse number 1, and it's called the Sermon on the Mount, familiar to us. 5 through 7 is the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 8 begins a narrative portion that always builds off of the, the, the discourse. So we have discourse number one. In chapter eight, we have narrative number one. And narrative number one takes us all the way through chapter nine. In chapter 10 and verse one, we find discourse number two. And if you were here during that study, you remember this is Jesus sending out the disciples. They are the first missionaries for the kingdom, of which we follow in their example. And narrative number two follows on the heels of that in chapters 11 and chapter 12. Discourse number three is chapter 13 and verse 1. This is the kingdom parables where Jesus now uses word pictures to hide the truth and to reveal the truth. To clarify for his people what is coming and true about the kingdom of heaven. And to shield that information from those who are his enemies and rejectors of his name in his messianic ministry. Narrative number three follows after those parables from chapter 14 through chapter 17. Discourse number four begins in chapter 18. And it carries through chapter 18 and the narrative portion following it, narrative number four, begins in chapter 19 verse 1 and goes through the end of chapter 23. So we are literally at the end. This is a closing statement in the narrative record that is connected to the teaching ministry that went on in chapter 18 of Matthew. And discourse number five begins in verse number one of chapter 24. 
in what is known as the Olivet Discourse at the Mount of Olives. This is the second most famous discourse that Jesus delivered. So we are at the end of a section within Matthew's Gospel record, and we are at the end of a discussion with the enemies of Jesus. And for weeks now, we've been watching the unification of his enemies against his sovereign authority. So Jesus brings sovereign authority. He heals as he wills. He speaks boldly the truths of God's word. And it unifies all who stand opposed to that authority. There is diversity amongst his enemies, but they are unified when it comes to their hatred of the king. And then finally, this gospel record wraps up at the very end in verses 16 through 20 of chapter 28 with a conclusion from the king. So we have an introduction to the king in verses chapters 1 through 4, and we have a conclusion from the king in the end of chapter 28, which is known as the Great Commission. So this morning we find ourselves in this last word kind of a moment with Jesus. He'll never relate to, in some kind of discussion-oriented setting, his enemies ever again. This will never happen. In fact, at the end of chapter 23, when he speaks to Jerusalem, Jerusalem, he will never again address the nation of Israel. He will only relate to his, his persecutors, his accusers, with silence, with minimal interaction. He will teach his disciples. He will, after his resurrection, meet with his disciples and followers of his kingdom purposes. But he will never again communicate with his enemies the way we find him in this closing statement of chapter number 23. Now, when we get into this last word, I think Matthew's intention becomes really clear to us. And if there's one theme that runs all the way through this chapter, it's this. Mere religion and its leaders are to be avoided, to be condemned, and to be pitied. Mere religion and its leaders are to be avoided, condemned, and pitied. Only Jesus ends mere religion and provides the way, the truth, and the life. Mere religion and its leaders are to be avoided, to be condemned, and to be pitied. Only Jesus ends mere religion and provides the way, the truth, and the life. John chapter 14 and verse 6. In this closing statement, we find a basic breakdown of this chapter. Jesus first instructs the people about the false religious system and the leaders of that system. Secondly, he condemns the leaders of that religious system. And finally, he has compassion and pity for the nation of Israel that is under the sway of these religious leaders. Now, why should you and I be interested in chapter 23? We're not here as the nation of Israel. We're not in the temple. It's not Tuesday on the Passion Week. Jesus is not to go to the cross in three days. We're here. We're at Kingsburg in the, in the theater, sitting with our Bibles in our laps. Why should we be concerned with what is addressed here to a very specific setting, very specific group of people, and a very specific intent? I propose to you this morning that the reason we should be concerned about chapter 23 of Matthew is that false religion is our default setting. So apart from the gracious work of God and granting us new hearts, granting us eyes to see, ears to hear, our default setting is religion, which is false. This is the death blow to religion, chapter 23. 
And this is where our heart naturally leans. We love the idea of working our own righteousness out before God, of earning our own salvation, of doing certain things that then get God's attention. And he goes, oh, well, I noticed that you went to church and I noticed that you were nice to somebody and that you gave some charity away. Uh, I, uh, that's good. We'll put that in the good section. And um, your scale is really lopsided still, so keep plugging away. Let's get some more good things over there that will bring that scale. We love that. We, we naturally bend toward that because that allows us to take the glory for our righteousness. This comes with us this morning because our flesh and the principle of sin is still here. Therefore, we are prone and we are in danger, if not careful and cautious and discerning, of being duped into similar religious systems and under the sway of similar false leaders for God. It's all of God's providence that David read Second Peter chapter 2. We're just reading through First and Second Peter. But it is Peter's almost mimicking of these words from Jesus in that letter that he wrote to the churches. So with that intention from Matthew to make clear to us that mere religion and its leaders should be avoided, condemned, and pitied, and that only Jesus stands as the remedy or the contrast to false religion and its leaders, and with the awareness that we bring to the table every time we come together a proneness in our flesh to false religion, to legalism, to externals. It's going to do us well, I think, and I know the Lord intends for it to affect change in us to study this with careful attention. Three major divisions that I think reinforce Matthew's intention of religion and its leaders being avoided, condemned, and pitied. Three major divisions. First is instruction for the people. Instruction for the people in verses 1 through 12. Let's look at verses 1 through 12 with a little bit more detail and intentionality in our study. Jesus says to the crowds and to the disciples, so those are the people that he's addressing. He's out on the patio, likely at the temple. There are hundreds of people milling around, and he's communicating to his disciples who are near him and the crowds that are gathering around him. And he gives them two basic instructions. Two basic instructions concerning the scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes were the experts in the words of the law. They were the ones who wrote the law. They were the experts in the words of the law. The Pharisees are the ones who are the experts of the theology of the law. He gives two instructions that center around the relationship of the people to the scribes and the Pharisees, to the religious leaders that they were encountering. Two basic instructions. One, obey, but do not emulate. Obey, but do not emulate. And two, live out a contrasting value system. So Jesus identifies these two careful instructions, or Matthew rather identifies them in his record of what Jesus says in verse number two down through verse number 12. The scribes and the Pharisees, says Jesus, sit on Moses' seat. Now, that, that's an unfamiliar phrase to us. We don't have a Moses seat here in the church. And when we, if Lord is willing, we have a permanent facility someday, we won't have a Moses seat in that facility either. And we won't have anyone sit on the Moses seat. The idea here is a metaphorical one. 
at least it's been understood as a metaphorical one, up until recent days where there has actually been something uncovered in archaeology that would maybe lean towards a literal seat of Moses that would have been in the temple. The idea here is a place of authority with God's word, instruction with God's word. Moses represents all of God's authority to the nation of Israel. And these individuals, the scribes and the Pharisees, sit in his seat. However presumptuous they may be, they sit in the seat with the scrolls open and deliver God's word to the people of God, the nation of Israel. And therefore, they're addressed as those that are sitting in Moses' seat. And therefore, we find Jesus instructing the people to obey them as they communicate clearly what God has really said. But do not emulate them. Verse 3. So practice and observe whatever they tell you. That is from Moses' seat. But not what they do. Perhaps you grew up with a do as I say, not as I do statement. That's exactly what the motto of the Pharisees and scribes should have been. They should have had a shirt on that said, when I sit in this seat, do as I say, but not as I do. And that's exactly what Jesus says. Obey them for their place of authority with the word if they are in keeping with the word. We know the Pharisees went far beyond the word in their burdens and their laws. We know the scribes were missing much of the word even as they were experts in the literal words that comprise the law. But as they sit in Moses' seat and as they read and explain the Bible, that is the Torah, Practice and observe whatever they communicate, but do not follow their example. Now, why does Jesus say this? And he identifies why their example is not to be followed. And and really what he does is he identifies what false leaders look like. So picking up in verse number two or verse number three, rather, we find the word for, which explains why they're not to do what they do for they preach, but do not practice. They preach, but do not practice. They declare, but they do not obey. They are speakers, but they are not doers. Therefore, you must not follow what they do because what they preach when they're in Moses' seat, they are not actually obeying with their lives. Their their lives do not match their words. Their authority is betrayed and undercut by their actions. Therefore, do not emulate these leaders. God's leaders are those that speak God's words and live under God's words. These false leaders are not to be emulated because they preach but do not practice. Verse number four, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with a finger. They burden, but they don't bear. Or perhaps even better, they burden, but they don't share. You remember in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says, come to me. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Jesus would come alongside of his people. He does and and continues to daily for us and bears our burden. He takes our sin upon himself. He carries our chains and, and heavy weights to the cross. His burden is light. The Pharisees would burden and burden and burden and would never share in the carrying of that load. There was no help to be afforded to the people that they burdened. They merely burdened them. And then walked away. False religious leaders preach but don't practice. 
even those who would handle the word of God. They burden, but they do not bear. And then finally, in verse number five, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. This is the final identification point for the reasoning behind his command to obey, but not emulate. They preach, but don't practice. They burden, but don't bear. And they only live to be seen by men. They do everything they do to be seen. Now, this is familiar to us. We know the struggle that it is to do what we do for the sight of our Father who sees in secret. The religious leaders, the false leaders who said they were leading people toward God were actually doing everything they were doing simply to be noticed by other men. What does that look like? Well, verse number five explains it to us. What is... What does that mean? Jesus says, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they love the place of honor at feast and the best seats in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. So three things happen that Jesus used as illustrations that these false leaders are not to be emulated because all they do, they do to be seen by others. The first one is their phylacteries and their fringes. And of course, that means much to you. I see many of you have your phylacteries on today. That's exciting. It's good news. And I've seen some long fringes too. Um, no, we, we have no idea what's going on here unless we have some kind of study Bible or something to help us. Or unless we have a really good working understanding of our Old Testament. The phylacteries were little boxes tied with leather straps to either the hand or the head, to the eyes. And they would contain portions of God's Word, the Torah, the law of God. They were, to be, they were to be tied onto the body, not just for the purpose of, of, of handy scripture memory tool, but also to be a constant marker and reminder that it is the law of God that comes to bear upon them. The Pharisees were known for their extravagant phylacteries, massive boxes on their arms, huge things on their forehead. Can you imagine? We walk in here and we're like, wow, look at that guy. He takes God's word seriously. Because he has that giant box tied to his forehead with a leather strap. We, we, we don't relate to this. They did this merely for that purpose, to be noticed. Secondly, their fringes were long. Um, fringes were also commanded in the law as a part of the garment for the Jewish people. They were to be markers and identifiers and reminders as well. And the Pharisees and the scribes were famous for their extravagant length of the fringes. Their obedience exceeded the law because of how great their clothing length was. See, all of this was external. All of this was to gain prominence. Second thing was they loved to have the seats of honor. They were always looking to get into the spot where everybody could see them. They were hungry for the adoration of of men, for choice seats. You remember the parable about the seats? Be careful that you don't sit in the seat of honor and have to be asked to move to the back. Sit in the back and allow those that seek to honor you to put you in a seat of honor. Same concept here. The Pharisees and the scribes knew nothing of that parable. They wanted the seats of honor. And secondly, they wanted to be greeted in the marketplace. And greeting does not mean, how are you? Shake your hand. Keep moving. Greetings in the marketplace were big deals. There was like trumpets happening and celebrations and massive yelling and greeting. 
They loved it. They came with their huge phylacteries and long fringes. They looked for the seats and they wanted to be greeted and they wanted to have titles. They loved titles. Titles were great, especially rabbi, expert in the word. Oh, they loved titles because they were identified clearly with merely external religion. They were to be obeyed if they sat in the seat of Moses with the law of Moses, but they were never to be emulated because they preached, but they did not practice. They burdened, but they did not bear. And they only lived to be seen by men. The second instruction that comes to the people is found in verse number eight. But you, so there's the three letter word that hinges this whole instructional element from Jesus. But you, as in those disciples and those in the crowd gathered around him, you are not to be called rabbi. So the second instruction is to live out a contrasting value system. You live differently. Obey them if they are authoritatively presenting God's word. Do not emulate them. And, and, and live out a contrasting kingdom value system. Do not be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. So Jesus says that titles ought to be avoided. Brother is the much more realistic title for one another within the body of Christ. Call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. There is to be no title of spiritual father placed upon any one individual within the kingdom purposes of Christ. There is only one father and these titles given within this spiritual realm, this religious realm, these titles represented distraction from truth. There is one instructor. And for you and I, as a part of the church, it is the Holy Spirit of God who has given us his word and who guides us in the truth. He is our instructor. His means of instruction include verbal proclamation, private study and consumption, reading the works of another spirit led individual. But it is the spirit who teaches. There is no father. In the church, there is only one Father. It's the Father from heaven. He is the only one that deserves that title. In verse number 10, neither be called teachers or instructors or trainers, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. Now notice what Jesus is doing here. He says, obey but don't emulate. And secondly, live out a contrasting worldview. Live out a value system that is opposite of what you're being taught by these false religious leaders. And in particular, understand that at the seat of Moses, they are presuming to have authority from God. The Messiah has the authority from God. You see the contrast here? Matthew's recording this contrast. This is, this is a clear line of demarcation that Jesus has come back to again and again and again. He is the true authority. He is the instructor. He is the head of our church. He is the leader of the church. He's the one who trains. And he does so under the Father. There is no other Father. This is the ministry of Jesus contrasted against the religion of the Jewish people. Jesus is putting religion to death here in the temple on Tuesday. Instruction for the people. 
obey but do not emulate and live out a contrasting value system. Now, what are the implications of that? Well, Jesus is the only true leader to righteousness before God. You see, this all comes back to this is Jesus saying this, and he's identifying himself as the one who carries all the information and all of the sovereign authority as the Christ. He's the only true leader. Therefore, to follow any man who would bear his own leadership, would have inherent leadership, is to run dangerously towards false religion. Mere religion and its leaders are to be avoided. But secondly, they're to be condemned. And thirdly, they're to be pitied. Notice the second part, and this is a large section that we won't spend a lot of time unpacking, but it, we, 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 we dare not skip it. The second part of Jesus' closing statement here is not just instruction to the people, but condemnation for the leaders. He specifically, aggressively condemns the leaders of the religious movement in which these people existed. These are leaders who carry scrolls that are the Old Testament. And they are doomed forever. They are the unified enemies of Christ and they now receive their condemnation verbally from Jesus. So he has instruction for the people and now secondly we see condemnation for the leaders. Now before we run through these verses, let me identify a quick technical note. You'll notice again if you're paying attention that verse number 13 is followed by verse number 15. So Jesus, having instructed the people that they're to live with a contrasting kingdom worldview, that they're to avoid the titles and that they're to live with the kingdom paradox of the least to the greatest, now turns the corner and addresses in condemnation the leaders and he makes one woe and then we have a missing verse. Some of you might have found verse 14 in your translation. The best manuscripts for Matthew leave out verse number 14 and there's a reason why. Those that were copying the word no doubt we're informed by Mark chapter 12 and Luke chapter 20. Mark chapter 12 and verse 40, Luke chapter 20 and verse 47, where we find what is verse number 14 if you have a verse number 14. And to keep it in parallel, a scribe is writing, perhaps he just finished with Mark, he's, he's copying out Matthew, and as he copies it, he goes, well, that, that can't be right. I, I remember specifically that it talked about widows stealing from widows. And he flips over and he goes, yeah, there it is. It's in Mark chapter 12. And he brings over and he adds it in to be careful to make sure that the integrity of what Jesus said is preserved. We know that it's an added segment because the manuscripts that include it can't figure out where to put it. Some put it before verse 13 as verse number 12. Some put it after as verse number 14. So it's an added in verse. Therefore, we delete it. It is a part of... Obviously, it's a part of the canon because in Mark chapter 12 and Luke chapter 20, we find those words from Jesus. But he didn't say them here. Matthew did not intend to record them as a part of his record of what Jesus was saying. Jesus does say quite a bit, though, in these woes. There are seven of them. Perhaps this is the title for your chapter heading, the seven woes. The woe is not a watch out. So woe can carry the uh, lookout. You're about to hit Hit the guardrail. Um, I don't think that's what my wife means when she goes, whoa, like that. But, but it might be. So perhaps you understand that kind of, that word, whoa. 
watch out, something bad is about to happen. This is a, this is a second uh, angle on the word woe. This is con- condemnation, doom is sure. This is you're to be pitied because this is true about you. You are doomed eternally to your condemnation because of your rejection of the Messiah. So notice the identification point in each one of these. Woe to you. And then there are scribes and Pharisees. And then they are identified as hypocrites, blind guides, hypocrites, hypocrites, hypocrites. I remember the song as a kid, hypocrites say one thing and do the opposite. No one wants to be a hypocriter who says one thing and does the opposite, I think was the way the song went. That's exactly how these men are identified with seriousness from the Savior. Seven of these woes, and let me just run through these. We'll come back to them next week and examine them, but let me give you an overview of what Jesus says. Why are these leaders 100% doomed? Why is their condemnation sure? Number one, because they hinder people from entering the kingdom. They give an appearance of actually welcoming people into the kingdom, but they hinder people from entering the kingdom of heaven. Number two, they labor and work for the damnation of souls. While they are perceived on the outside to be laboring and working for the salvation of souls, they're actually laboring for the damnation of souls because of their blindness. They are deceiving people. Number three, they distract worshipers from worship. They strain gnats and they swallow camels. They are confused. They are blinded in their understanding of worship. Number four, they major on minors and minor on majors. Or even better, they major on minors and ignore the majors. They are to be doomed and considered condemned because they hinder people from entering the kingdom. They labor for the damnation of souls. They distract worshipers from worship. They major on minors and minor on majors. Verses number 25 and 26, they seek holiness from the outside in. Brothers and sisters, that never works. You can never clean up your heart by fixing something on the outside. You can't fix actions and hope that the motives follow. The gospel changes the heart, which results in the change of the life. Never the other way around. And these false teachers are doomed because they believed, they pursued, and they taught change from the outside in. Number six, they deceive with appearances of righteousness. They are whitewashed tombs. They're painted over dead bodies. They are spiritually, they are death warmed over. They look right, but when you get close, it's all death. And number seven, their woe is pronounced because they honor those whom they truly despise. They put flowers on the graves of the one that their heart kills. And Jesus condemns them for that. Finally, in this chapter, we'll come back and we'll study this in more detail next week. But finally, we see the compassion of Jesus. And I want to focus and read these as we finish. We're going to remember the sacrifice of Christ. And it is my, it's good for us to be mindful of this as the final section before we move to remembering the sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus, with all genuine compassion and pity, in verse number 37, says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And now he identifies the city, the city that kills the prophets, 
and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as hen hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not. Your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. That is not the resurrection. That's Psalm 118, verse 26. That is the return of Jesus. The parousia is what that's called theologically. The return of Jesus when he will conquer all of his enemies. And his throne will be established without competition. Jesus here, finally, after having instruction for the people, condemnation for the leaders, now shows compassion for the nation. His compassion for the nation would be known in his giving of his own life to their hands. Peter, in Acts chapter 2, in the record of the sermon at Pentecost, would recount that it was these people who killed the Messiah. And yet, these people, if they were to turn in faith, if they were to repent, that is, turn away from their sin and self-righteousness, and in faith, run to the cross, they would receive grace. The leaders are condemned. The people are to be pitied. The nation has turned away from its promised Messiah. Turn in your Bible to Romans chapter 11. And let's finish here as we move into our time of remembrance. This is an important part of our story, what we're reading in this closing statement from Jesus and all of the condemnation and all of the warning and all of the woe that is there is all a part of our story of grace. And Paul makes this clear. He's arguing for God's love for the nation of Israel that continues to this day. But he argues with this awareness in verse number 11 of chapter 11 in Romans. He says, so I ask, did they stumble? That is the Israelites. Did the nation stumble in order that they might fall? Are they done? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, that's, a, that's the first verse of a, of a long section that goes way into the deep end of the pool. Let me simplify this. The rejection of Israel, of their Messiah, King Jesus, even under the blind leadership of their religious system and its experts, allowed for, provided for the inclusion of Gentiles within the purposes of God's saving work through Christ. We were aliens to the promises. We were set apart from the covenants of God as Gentile peoples. We have no access to the Torah. We had no access to Yahweh. He is the God of Israel. He's the God of Jacob. But because of Israel's rejection, the gospel extends to us, the Gentiles. And in the church, God is now gathering a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Not because the nation of Israel is forever doomed, never to be restored. There will be a remnant gathered. He will, he will restore his people, the nation of Israel. But because of their rejection, the promises have come to the Gentiles. And through their trespass, we have been granted access to the promises. So in the closing statement, we are warned of the danger of false teachers. And that is true for us today as much as it was then. Secondly, 
we see the condemnation of the leaders of the false religious system. Don't follow false religious leaders and don't become one. Thirdly, we see the compassion for the nation of Israel, which leads to our inclusion and will lead to their restoration as the people of God's chosen affection. All of this is for our benefit as we see Christ upheld by Matthew as the Messiah. There is no other. There is no other name under heaven whereby men are saved. It is Jesus the Christ promised and come. Emmanuel, God with us. Let's worship him more appropriately. Let's remember him with gratitude as we prepare to receive the elements of the Lord's table. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the privilege of having your word. The privilege of possessing in our own language your truth. Communicated under the inspiration of your spirit by real individuals and then preserved through the power of your providential plan, even until today. We've been instructed by our Savior. I pray that the words of our Savior would resonate with our hearts, that we would hear his voice as he instructs us never to follow the example of the false teachers, to receive the word, but never to emulate the destructive patterns of living that marked out these false leaders and all false leaders of mere religion. Father, I pray that the contrasting worldview, the value system that marks the disciples of Christ would be true of us, that it would mark us, that it would be our stamp as your people. Inform us freshly that those that are humbled are exalted, those that are exalted in and of themselves will be humbled by you. May we avoid our own bent toward false religion. And may we be reminded that mere religion faces only condemnation from you. We have the privilege of hearing your voice because your spirit is with us and your spirit is with us because your son is at your right hand seated and he is seated because he has once for all offered the perfect sacrifice of his own life, both as sacrificed and high priest. And he now is the mediator between us as sinful humanity and you through faith. He intercedes for us. He stands in our place. He bridges the gap. We remember the sacrifice that purchased our redemption now. And as we take this bread and this cup and we eat and we drink it, guard us from ritual. Guard us from flippantly going through a motion of some Christian activity that would be merely external. May we do what we do with hearts of worship and adoration for the Christ who bears all sovereign authority as your exact imprint, humbled in the form of a man, obeying you all the way through the cross, being raised in victory over death and sin, and now living eternally, making us known to you and allowing us the privilege of knowing you, which is eternal life. We want to exalt him as we remember him now. Help us, we pray. Change us. May we be worshipers of Christ that live for Christ, speak for Christ. 
boldly following Him wherever He leads us. We'll give You praise and thanks, Father, for Your work. We offer up our requests in the power of Your Spirit, with the help of Your Spirit, and in the name of Your Son.